when you when you look at the NFL guys, I'm sure they're all being told, yeah, you've probably got CTE. This is likely what it is. In boxing, it's punch drunk syndrome. It's punchy. It's dementia pugilistica. Very few people are up with the times and actually using this phraseology. And this should be used not just from feature writers like me and you, but obviously, I think commentary teams as well. You know, this needs to be part of a very big conversation where we we need to stop hiding from it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Tris Dixon, who has a brand new book out called Damage that looks at boxing through the lens of chronic traumatic encephalopathy and the damage that has been inflicted on fighters throughout, what, I guess, 125-odd years of gloved prize fighting. And it's a, it's a penetrating look. It was inspired by the NFL book League of Denial by Steve Fainaru. And I think this is, uh, judging by the critical reaction, um, really blowing people away with just how necessary it is. And um, there are some incredible portraits in it of Amir Khan and Freddie Roach and so many others. And it's, it's just a wonderfully necessary book for those of us that love the sport or have been involved in the sport. And Tris has his own personal connection to 10 years of being an amateur and his father had Parkinson's. So uh, it, it, it's just a really vital, necessary, powerful and um, hard look, brave look at boxing and the damage that is inflicted on so many heroic characters. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Tris Dixon, on Tourist Information. So how does one go about writing about such a divisive topic and yet unifies all critical opinion in your favor? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it's early doors to say that I've unified critical, critical, uh, critical reports. Um, Hey, I think it was a subject that needed to be addressed. And I think there was a, a real need for education in the sport. Um, you know, when you think of, I'd, be, I'd been in the sport 20 odd years before I wrote this book. And um, I didn't know of any of the stuff that, you know, the primary drivers behind this book, apart from the stuff I did know was that fighters tend to struggle in retirement. Many of them battle with depression. And obviously there's the, the stereotypical punch drunk uh derogatory term that's been around for well, since 1928 and, and even a, you know a little bit before that so i i knew those pieces of the puzzle but what i didn't know was about cte and that actually cte which is the forefront medical condition from the the nfl's concussion crisis is actually the modern day punch drunk syndrome it's the same thing so obviously reading league of denial that that great all-encompassing book about the nfl's concussion crisis and learning that CTE was actually punch drunk syndrome. I was thinking, well, you know, the NFL is doing something about it, but it's actually boxing's problem. You know, punch drunk syndrome is ours, you know, and, that, and they've sort of, they've, they've, they've now reluctantly gone out of their way to, to look at procedures and policies to make the sport safer. And we're doing nothing. And not only are we doing nothing, but people, including myself, who've been in the sport for two decades, didn't even know really what we were looking at scientifically. So, you know, I had this sort of eureka moment where I thought, you know, there's actually a, a real 
need for this book. Uh, and so I started writing it. And, um, and, and I think, you know, when people read the book, people will put piece the piece, will piece the different parts of the jigsaw together and not only see why I've done it, but I think that's obviously why I think it's um, unified people so far. I think people, there's been a few people, more than more than one or two journalists thinking, ah, do you know what, that was a really good idea. We should have thought about that. And, you know, I'm not saying it was a, it was a great idea, but I'm saying, you know, it hadn't been done before. Uh, so I realized that there was a, there was a gap. So I sort of slotted myself in there for the last four years and started set about filling the gap. Well, it's so interesting too, because with, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the way Ali could have been the great cautionary tale as a kind of canary in the coal mine about taking this so seriously that this can happen to Ali, um, that was, as you point out, totally avoided and sort of covered up, really, by not just the family, but boxing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, hey, I think it's a tough one, isn't it? Because, you know, you, re you read that there was Parkinson's in his family and, um, you know, the fact that, you know, if, if there are neurologists pointing to it being Parkinson's and the symptoms look the same from the outside in, then who are you to sort of question it? But obviously with what we know now, it's easy to question. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. And, you know, Ali, could, could, in, it, it's a tough one, Brim, because I sometimes think, yeah, he could have been the face of it and he could have made a huge difference. And obviously there are voices in the book that do say that and point to that. But it's kind of like the whole thing that I keep hearing where when there's a death in boxing and the, the winner of a fight and the, the loser's lost his life, the winner of the fight fails a drugs test, that will be the smoking gun. You know, was it, would Ali have been the smoking gun? And I still don't think that we will get the smoking gun, even if someone's killed in a fight and someone's using PEDs. I don't think boxing will do much about it, depressingly. I don't. I don't see, you know, at the moment, guys are failing PET to PED tests, winning fights, and they're not getting the results overturned on their record. They're still counting as wins. Right. Or, or sometimes no contest, which is just insane to me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Ali thing such an interesting debate because it came – ahead of really all this sort of stuff um and you know it, it for me when i first learned of ali and who he was and his parkinson's diagnosis and i was obviously a fight fan it was made to think oh yeah no it's not through boxing it's parkinson's and that's what i was told and that's what i understood but then when you start to look at his contemporaries when you start to look at and i obviously i go through this golden age in the book when you start to look at jimmy ellis jimmy young Jerry Quarry, George Chavalo down the line, uh, Ernie Terrell, you know, all these guys suffer with neurological deficits, whether it's, whether it was CTE for all of them, but they were certainly diagnosed with Alzheimer's, dementia or Parkinson's and people like Ezra Charles and, and, and Scott Ledoux more from it, from that era um, with ALS. So yeah. And then, then I started to think, you know, during, and that was one of the first chapters I wrote, actually, that was one of me piecing the pub thinking how have these guys all got neurological issues when you know how uh let's see how um nadal djokovic andy murray and roger federer are 20 years from now 30 years from now i bet they won't be all suffering with alzheimer's dementia and parkinson's you know fingers crossed um and i was thinking geez this is this is just really big and it's it's no longer i can't even put i can't put it down to coincidence anymore this is clearly what's going on yeah i mean <clears throat> 
it's interesting because I kept finding myself as I was reading your book thinking this is a sport where a thousand people died in the 20th century through training, sparring, or fighting. Not really any serious calls to ban the sport on the basis of that. I mean, here and there, you know, some some people objecting. Howard Cosell very famously after watching Tex Cobb. Um, but I mean, I believe Jonathan Eig, who wrote this recent biography on Ali, estimated that Ali suffered 200,000 blows to the head, likely, over the course of his involvement with boxing. Yeah, I mean, so you can see that, you know, CompuBox have bought out a, a, an Ali by the numbers book. And they've been, and I think they did it in, con in conjunction with, with Ike's biography. I think they were doing a lot of the work for, for Ike. And certainly, you know, I, I worked out that I didn't go as extensively as I did. But obviously, there were a lot of calls for Mohammed to stop boxing, particularly after that Ernie Shavers fight where he took a tremendous amount of punishment. And obviously he had a career full of it by then. And he'd been boxing from a young age too, of course. But after the, after that fight, he had both fights with Leon Spinks. He had Larry Holmes and he had Trevor Burbick. And I think the stat, the CompuBox stats are there that he took about eight and a half thousand blows uh, from shavers through to the, through to the end and obviously that you know we know the sp the sparring stories from Deer Lake of how he used to just cover up on the ropes and particularly as he got older and just allow these guys to wail away on him so there was a lot of punishment at the end of his career and uh you know the stigma with punch drunk syndrome really and this came from some of the early scientific papers and probably from some of the more naive people in boxing they the stigma was that if you got it you weren't very good and basically, it would happen to journeymen, to sparring partners, to, to guys that perennially lost and, you know, would just get beaten up all the time. The problem comes with that is obviously, as we now know, in these some of these grueling 12-round fights or 15-round fights back in the day, where you match these unmistakable wills against one another, these guys drag each other through hell. You know, look at Gatti Ward, look at Mohammed and Frazier, you know, one and th three specifically as well. You know, so you can see how the argument comes that actually almost the better you are, the more at risk you are, because you have, you know, more capacity for uh, enduring um, wars. You have more capacity, you have more fitness, you have more experience because you've because you are experienced. That means you take a more damage. So some of these guys are at risk, are more at risk by having these hard fights. And obviously this is one of the things that boxing wants to get to the bottom of is what's more damaging, a one-round blowout or a 12-round war. And these are things that scientists are working on all the time. And, I, you know, I don't have the answer to that. I say I, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of either of them. No. But, that, but that's the thing with Ali. And I wonder if there's a bit of vanity in there for on his part and his family's part where – you know, the stigma was that if you're punchy, you just weren't that good. And I say punchy in inverted commas. I hate that. But, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the phraseology that's used. And obviously people haven't associated with, with Ali with CTE. And, you know, I would love to see CTE universally adopted in the boxing lexicon. I still read, uh, I still read pieces about guys and I read features from, from some really top feature writers and they're still using punch drunk or dementia pugilistica which uh you know they were sort of done away with by when mcdonald critchley coined um cte back in about 1947 and the boxing trade is still using dementia pugilistica and i mean it's not that because it's been scientifically proven that dementia is not always present 
Right. So it's, you know, it is, it is what it is, but it's not dementia pugilistica, but I still see it all the time. Problem comes with this, by the way, not just from boxing and boxing's lack of attention and stuff, but there's some, there's some doctors out there who aren't very familiar clearly with CTE. For example, Harold Graham, one of the, one of my, one of my heroes from the book, he's been told he's punch drunk by his, by the guys in the psychiatric ward where he was, um, where he was spending time. He was told, literally, he was punch drunk. He wasn't told about CTE. The same way there's been a couple of boxers who have talked to me about their problems and they've been diagnosed with dementia pugilistica. And, you know, I just, just my mind's blown. Like, what? where are we living? 1930. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm sure the, I'm sure, sorry, Brian, I don't mean to go on, but I'm sure when you, when you look at the NFL guys, I'm sure they're all being told, yeah, you've probably got CTE. This is likely what it is. In boxing, it's punch drunk syndrome. It's punchy. It's dementia pugilistica. Very few people are up with the times and actually using this phraseology. And this should be used not just from feature writers like me and you, but obviously I think commentary teams as well. You know, this needs to be part of a very big conversation where we we need to stop hiding from it. The way in which... Me, the media has covered this fascinates me, not just with football. Um, I'm friendly with Steve Fainaru. He sent me that book, well, through his, through his publisher. Uh, and it's made me think like the O.J. Simpson documentary, Made in America. Ezra Edelman gave an interview on long form where he said he did interview some of the people that you did to posit the possibility that O.J. Simpson may have CTE or that concussions that he endured throughout his career as a running back, where the whole offense of the Buffalo Bills ran through O.J. Simpson, so a pile of impact. And I think in League of Denial, they make mention that the average NFL player over the course of a season and practice endures something like the equivalent of 30 car wrecks into a brick wall going 30 miles an hour. That's, that's the cognitive damage that they're incurring. But... Ezra Edelman made a choice to omit any reference or supposition about the possible impact of CTE in O.J. Simpson's action post-football, which I think is very intriguing, especially given with Aaron Hernandez, who's now been launched into all kinds of series of true crime in assessing the damage that he had. I believe that he had the most advanced case of CTE ever seen in a human brain. So I just wonder if you could speak to people trying to avoid some of the conclusions that the data would reveal. So, I mean, you're touching on some dark stuff there, Bryn. And, and to be honest, like, I think we've all got, there's probably something in all of us that makes us very curious about this stuff. And, you know, you want to know and you start to, you know, certainly when, because now since people have known I've been doing the book, when something, when someone's behavior is outrageous, speculation, someone will tag me in a tweet and say, do you think this could be CTE? You know, if someone's done something, whether it's deeply criminal or committed suicide, it's now becoming part of the conversation, obviously, particularly when you look at combat sports and, and the wider realms, when you look at the horrible wrestling case with Chris Benoit and when you look at, you know, when you, you can trace back, and this is one of the things really that got me thinking with boxing, you know, when you start to think of the the horrible incidences of, of how fighters have, 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 you know, when you think of some of their demises over the years, this is where I started to draw parallels with the NFL. 
because you were reading about the horrible stuff of uh, Mike Webster and, and, you know, some of those early Pittsburgh Steelers cases. And I was thinking, geez, this is boxing. And then there was suicides, there were murder. There was, you know, and in boxing, we'd had Kid McCoy, we'd had Billy Papka, you know, back in the 20s and 30s. We'd had Del Fontaine, who's convicted of, of murdering his girlfriend and then was hung, was actually hanged um, like by, by the law for, for it. Um, and he actually used punch drunk as his defense, you know, in, 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 as it was, you know, he used punch drunk as the, as his defense in, in, in trial. Um, so when any of these things happen, there is that propensity to think, is it CTE? So when you get these guys, whether it's, you know, in boxing, whether we look at Ike Iabiabuchi or whether you look at, uh, Tony Ayala, and you think, well, hang on, do, do these guys actually have a criminal mind or is it head trauma? Or one of the other things you've got to factor in is socioeconomics. You know, some of these guys come from childhoods of severe trauma and they might have just always been destined to 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 crash. Right. So, so, and this is one of the things the fighter study in Las Vegas is trying to work out now. And they've got 800 boxers and mixed martial artists in this study. And they're trying to work out, um, you, you know, using fighters' backgrounds, they're trying to track, you know, were these guys always destined to, to, come, un to come unglued? Or has the head trauma they've been exposed to expediated, expediated it or caused it? And so what you're saying, and people talk about this with Aaron Hernandez, um, you know, they're like, is it the trauma? Did, was he born with a criminal mind? Or has he just had a really bad hand in life and he was always destined to self-destruct? We don't know. But this is, this is, this is as, as I say, it's part of the conversation. And it, you, you'd be well within your rights to theorize it because, you know, the stuff that O.J. Simpson has, has uh, been alleged to have done and all the rest of it, the guys with CTE who've been found to have CTE have done similar stuff. Yeah. So then for it's easy to put them in that bracket. And therefore, obviously, like you say, it's curious when they're not, when it's not part of the conversation. You're like, well, hang on, that needs to be addressed because it could be this. It could be. It might not be, but it certainly could be. Well, no, and just in the omission is an editorial choice that has real ramifications. Just as we were saying before with Ali to say this is strictly a motor skills issue and it's not neurological you don't know that it's not neurological. You haven't looked into his brain to know what it was before boxing and after. I don't mean you, but I mean people <laughs> making those, those claims. And I mean, I'm thinking also as somebody as a child who was a fan of wrestling, how much has CTE affected these stuntmen who are performing 250 days a year who get addicted to all these kinds of pain medications and then they need uppers to perform and just i mean how many concussions must be going on there even when things are being performed properly i think the thing is with that though Bryn, is when you look at wwe stuff and you look at the nfl they are making changes like i know with the wwe they've got a wellness policy but they've also taken out what, what whatever they call it in terms of chair shots to the head but basically you know, full shots to the head where you, where you can't protect yourself. And they've, they've implemented different things. And the same with the NFL, whether it's return to play policies, whether it's preseason training, like they have implemented stuff. And obviously it's kind of over to boxing to think, you know, hang on, what, what, what are you doing and how are you looking after it? And how are you evolving with the times like the other sports and businesses are? Because 
those sports are evolving and they'll continue to evolve. We're, have, we're, here, we're having it here with soccer, you know, and people not heading footballs under the age of 14. And we're having it with rugby practice. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more now. The rugby union team, the rugby World Cup winning team from 20, from 2003. Some of those guys, Steve Thompson and stuff, they've, they've now got uh, class action lawsuits against the rugby authorities over in this country because some of those winners in 2003 can't even remember the whole tournament in Australia. Right. So, you know, it's the thing is, another thing with the media is and the way that this is covered is it seems to be very cyclical. And I'm not sure damage is going to be the one that that makes the attention go on to boxing. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. But you see these the media are very pack orientated, as you'll know, and they've jumped from the NFL to rugby league to soccer to rugby union. And maybe boxing is the next one to go properly under the microscope. Maybe it's not. But, you know, and then there was a bit with pro wrestling and all the rest of it. So. They are being addressed, but it's very rare. Like you know, so it's kind of the just jump from one to the next to the next. Right. Um, but that's you know that's the pack animal that is the media. It, it's just interesting for me. Uh, I think last month I interviewed Ken Burns and and Lynn Novick, his co-director, on the Ernest Hemingway series they just did for PBS, and I had not really ever thought of Hemingway or his awful behavior in so many instances in the context of CTE or PTSD, which is an egregious thing to neglect from the calculus of, of who he was as a person, given he had nine major concussions. Uh, a, a neuroscientist actually did a whole book about Hemingway's brain and points this out, as well as being blown up at 18 years old in World War One, and was pretty avidly involved in boxing. I believe he lost, he didn't qualify for the military because his eye had been poked in a boxing match when he was a teenager sort of thing. But I think it is interesting about trying to weigh the responsibility of an individual against their fight against an illness that we know has these defining characteristics of uh, lack of impulse control, depression, suicidal ideation, and, and I mean, with with League of Denial, as I recall, at least with the documentary, which I think uh, followed up on some of the data, I think well over 95% of the brains that have been collected at the brain bank have shown signs of CTE. And I'm wondering if a similar study was done with boxers that have spent any time in the sport. I mean, what percentage of boxers do you think are being damaged as a result of their involvement in the sport at an amateur or pro level? It, it, well, it's probably terrifyingly high. And then obviously, yeah. you know, you know where you're coming in from that, there's, there's a couple of things really. One is, you know, boxing actually it is quite favorably received when it comes to stats, whether it's on death or acute injuries. You know, it's, it's quite, a way down the, quite a way down the list which is why it gives us all a bit of a false economy in the sense that, you know, boxing is, you know, the damage I'm talking about, obviously, as you mentioned, their CTE, which is chronic, which means long-term, this is damage over time. And this is long-term damage. And there's no stats for this because so many of these guys, as you know, not only wind up under the radar, but they wind up in homeless shelters. They wind up broke, they wind up divorced and they wind up desolate. So there's no stats to track it. And obviously the only thing, the other, the other thing is, CTE can only actually be diagnosed during an autopsy when the slides are taken from someone's brain and you can see the tau protein under a microscope. Um, 
you know, you can't diagnose someone really with CTE when they're still alive, you know, certainly not accurately. Someone like Mickey Ward has been diagnosed with it because people know the extreme trauma he's taken and he's starting to show some symptoms. But other than that, you have to wait until people have gone and then donate their brains for research to, to actually find out if they've had it or, or if they haven't. So, you know, a lot of brains need to be studied and a lot of research needs to be done. But in terms of where the stats are for boxers, it's probably terrifying. We've all been to those boxing dinners. We've been to those boxing gala nights and boxing, you know, weekends and stuff where we're surrounded with guys who've been in the fight game and fought for 10, 15, 20 sometimes 30 years or more and you can see who the boxers are without even having to speak to them you can see who they are and so the 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 numbers are are probably um i'm not trying to be sensationalist here but they're probably they're certainly higher than you and i as boxing people would like to be uh and and i would probably venture to suggest they'd shock a lot of people well as i as i remember it with the documentary facing ali with all of his opponents detailing their fights against Ali, um, they all spoke English as a first language, and I think over half of them required subtitles due to their, their speech issues. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's telling, isn't it? Like I said, we've all we've all been there, and the thing is, as well, this is one of the this is one of the stigmas that we want to try and change, you know, through the book, in the sense that these guys need help and, and support, and they also deserve our respect still. And I think too many people sort of shrug their shoulders and say, ah. You know, he's punchy. And then they either feel awkward and don't know how to talk to these people or they just think, you know, that they don't really have any anything much more to offer. And it's a shame because obviously, you know, these guys are absolute warriors who deserve so much respect that it's a shame that it's become uh, something that has become a derogatory thing over the years. And I mean, I, this has been, a, it's obviously a pop culture thing as well, you know, in the sense where, it's been in the media and in the press that someone who's punchy is said to be sort of goofy and all the rest of it. We had Donald Trump recently, you know, in the last few years, I think he was president at the time, referring to Robert De Niro as being punchy in the, in, in the, I think via Twitter, which then the newspapers all got hold of because obviously De Niro played Jake LaMotta in Raging, Raging Bull. Donald Trump was saying, oh, you know, he's taken too many punches. He's punchy. And he's put that whole stereotype right in the public eye. No sympathy, you know, no, you know, to the people suffering. And like I said, he's used an archaic diagnosis from 1928 to describe someone. And then we get that in boxing as well. I mean, I remember in the not too distant past, we have a, a controversial fighter over here called O'Hara Davis. And he was calling... Ashley Theophane trying to call him out in a fight a couple of years ago and calling him punchy and punch drunk and all the rest of it. He said you're something like you're the most punch drunk fighter there is. And, you know, it's just so unsavory because these guys deserve more respect than, than that. Well, what do you, I mean, how do you feel with this? I mean, if, remember they said in League of Denial that if 20% of American mothers that would otherwise allow their kids to play American football don't forbid them. Um, the sport's going to be dead in 20, 30 years kind of thing. Yeah, so, so I, I think that's a, that, that, that's great. And I kind of figured we were coming onto that. I think the thing is, it's not going to be dead. But obviously what you can do is limit that exposure, certainly at a young age. Because when you're looking at a young age and you're looking at kids, the brain's not developed and it's not grown. And I think this, I think I, I believe I put this in the book somewhere. This is why I think Wilfred Benitez is in the state he's in now. We laud him as being the youngest ever world champion at 17. 
This was a guy that Don Majeski saw in the gyms in New York going life and death with Emil Griffith when he was 14 years old. Yeah. You know, a former world champion, a legend in Emil Griffith who was very much on the downside. And obviously fighting someone like Benitez probably didn't do Griffith any good later in life either. But Benitez was having these wars with Emil Griffith in sparring at 14. So, you know... I think the thing is, it's about exposure and it's about being sensible. And, you know, with what I know now, I, I've said this before, you know, I, I, I watch I watch everything with a slightly different and, and a slightly keener eye now. And I have this debate as a, as a, as a parent now. My son's 14. He plays in defence for, for a local soccer team. When a big goal kick goes up at the back and I'm looking at it, you know, I, I'm stuck because... I'm an old school guy. I'm not a woke guy. So the proud dad part of me thinks, go on, son, get your head on it and you know, head it. And the bit of me that's been spending four years on a book about neuroscience and boxing says, just let it bounce and kick it somewhere. Just, you got nothing to prove. I'm absolutely torn up by it as a parent. And I wouldn't let him box to the head at this age. But there's loads of stuff he can do. And when it comes to the NFL, I think what they've done is obviously they've, They've taken, they've, 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 from what I believe, they stripped back the preseasons and the amount of uh, head or, or the amount of um, possible exposure to head trauma through preseasons. And they're like, save it for the, for game day, save it for game day. And boxing should be very similar. And this means, you know, this means changing the culture with regard to sparring and everything else as well. Like, save it for game day because it's going to come back and bite you in the ass down the line. Well, but I also wonder, I mean, what makes an exciting football game, strictly strictly by that metric, most people would say it's because of the violence. You know, they want it like right after a great touchdown, it's a great hit. And I mean, same with boxing. Uh, I was working on something the other day saying, uh, if you look at Manny Pacquiao's legacy for his era, it's a bit like Babe Ruth because you have the most iconic knockout loss that he suffered to Marquez. And then you have these great victories. And Babe Ruth, they used to say, was the most exciting player with him hitting a home run. And the second most exciting thing was him getting struck out. And Pacquiao had a bit of that, that you knew the style that he had was going to almost guarantee an exciting outcome. And yet, if you compared him to the careers of Andre Ward or Floyd, Floyd Mayweather Jr., I don't think anybody is going back to revisit their career fights for the same excitement that's generated. It's taking nothing away from their achievement compared to Pacquiao, where there's a kind of intrinsic recklessness to that style that one would assume is going to lead him to take to receive far more damage from the sport and for the rest of his life than Ward or Mayweather ever permitted themselves to take. Um but I'm just, I, I guess I, this is a long winded approach just to say, aren't most people watching boxing for the risk of death, for as close as they can get to the risk of death and the violence? Like, isn't that precisely what's drawing them in? Maybe there's some in the crowd that think that. I mean, for me, obviously, having tried the sport as an unsuccessful amateur for a 10, 10 year period, it was, it, it's never been about that. It's always been about, I've been so amazed by how these fighters do what they do. And I don't mean just in terms of heart and courage, but I mean like I couldn't get out of the way of one punch, let alone six. So how these guys work in that kind of intricate matrix where they can dodge, slip, 
you know, duck under punches and then fire two and move off and then do it all again, like operating at speed chess levels. It, it leaves me baffled. So, I mean, I watch it for the sport. And it's the same way that people say to me, oh, it's the only sport where you try to render someone unconscious. Well, when I was boxing, I the way I saw it was I just saw a target in front of me, like it was a target from, from a shooting range. And when I saw an opening, I tried to hit the target. So it wasn't me thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to punch a hole through the back of your head and thinking like that. It was me like thinking, imagine this is what I'm seeing. There's the open target. I need to hit that target as quick as I can. You know, so you're looking at different, different, uh, you know, hey, there's societies filled with so many different groups. There are obviously the, the groups there that will say that the whole thing's just barbaric and we'll write it off. And I'm obviously at the other end of the spectrum where I'm a pro boxing guy. I can see the good it's done in communities, in society, with individuals, with trainers, how it's helped turn people's lives around. And so I'm more open to the discussion of actually let's, let's try to mitigate risks rather than going down the ethical issues, you know, people who want it banned, outlawed and all the rest of it and say it's a blood sport and all the rest of it, because those arguments have been around for years. And for me, they are tired arguments. And the thing is, why change it? Why? No, this is the thing with, with, with where we're at. So a couple of times during the writing of this book, people are saying, oh, do you think it should be banned? Almost like as a first question. And I'm like, that's such a quantum leap from having a sport to not having it. You know, when soccer's now talking about this, what they're calling dementia in football and stuff over here, and I'm sure it's not dementia. I'm sure it's obviously CTE. But when they're talking about that, they're not just talking about, they're not, no one's talking about banning the sport. But for somehow for boxing, it's an easy fit to just start talking, oh, ban this, ban that. You know, but there's loads of stuff, obviously, as I've outlined in, in the book, how you can reduce risks and how you can mitigate the risk. Yeah, sure. Like, I wouldn't say we're going to screw around with fight night too much because that's, that's when, that's when the, the sport sort of comes into its own. But in terms of the sports organizational structure, in terms of sparring, in terms of the care for fighters and the aftercare for fighters, so much more can be done than, than, than is actually being done. And I think that's where boxing can change. I just, I'm just curious. I mean, America for the first time watched a man beaten to death, well, just die as a result of watching a boxing match with Emil Griffith and Benny Perrette. That was the first time they saw somebody killed on television and metabolized that. Do you know, do you know what, John? I can actually, there's, I've got, I've always had a big theory about this and it's not one I've shared too much in the past. I went and interviewed Gene and Don Fulmer many years ago at their homes in Salt Lake City. And um, I remember Gene telling me how bad he felt because he'd beating, beaten the living daylights out of Benny Perret like weeks before he fought Emil Griffith, like not long at all before him. And it was one of the most one-sided drubbings you'll ever see, Gene Fulmer beating up Benny Perret. And I remember Don Fulmer, when I spoke to Don about it, because I spoke to Gene about it one day, and he said I felt terrible that he beat him so badly. And then uh, and then Don told me the next day, he said, God, yeah, Gene really beat his brains out. And then Benny Perret died in his next fight, which I think if you look at look up, maybe it was even like two weeks later. It was ridiculously close. So I think actually, yes, Emil Griffith was the guy who was in the ring that night when Benny Perret died. But, you know, then the book touches upon this. He probably went in there with a severe, severe concussion and brain injuries overlying from that fight with, 
with with Gene Fulmer a few weeks earlier. And, you know, this is, again, part of the book and, you know, you know, not that actual story, but part of the risks of people ignoring the, the signs, ignoring the health signs. And, 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 you know, part of the culture needs to be changed so that these guys are looked after and so they, are, they know how to look after themselves so that things like that don't happen. Yeah, I, I'm just curious. I'm just curious how society is going to confront some of these issues when it's like the lowest common denominator. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, me too with boxing, appreciating the technique and the discipline and all of these positive things. And early on in this podcast, I interviewed a, a neuroscientist, Sean Froudist Walsh, who's also quite uncomfortable del delving into the possible dark side of the implications of boxing at any level. We just don't have enough information yet. Um, but it's, I, I guess I'm just trying to imagine like here, if you're a police officer in the United States, you're automatically a hero. It's like, <laughs> that's the way it's seen. Like you, it's just like being in the military. The moment you sign up, it's a kind of participation trophy. It doesn't matter what your conduct is by default, you're a hero. And yet policemen here, when they confront danger, the big problem is, is that they, they take out a gun as a first response in so many instances that, that are, is so alarming for people. And I wonder, like, like my grandfather was a logger, which I think by the statistics is the most dangerous profession that, ex that exists in terms of how many people die. My uncle died as a 16 year old tree fell on his head while he was logging with my grandfather. So it's a very dangerous profession. Neither. I don't, nobody in my family thought we need to ban logging as a result of that death. But I mean, there was a ready acknowledgement about this is horrendously dangerous out here. And yet we're right with boxing. I mean, when Benny Perrette died, there were a lot of calls to ban boxing at that time. So, and I've wondered also as Ronda Rousey became the biggest name in the UFC, what happens if a female fighter in the UFC gets seriously injured or show signs of CTE, like where will that sport be in 20, 30 years when we see women damaged? Um, like what, what effect will that have? So I just wonder like, where do you see society going? I understand what you're talking about in terms of mitigating the extreme risks with sparring you talk a lot about, I totally agree with you, but we're never gonna not have boxing. We're never, as long as you can make money, we're not gonna lose football or soccer or any of these sports where there's going to be a lot of victims. Um, where do you see it in 20, 30 years though? Or same with professional wrestling. You're talking about mitigating some of the extreme risks or unnecessary risks, but people are going to continue to engage in this despite how dangerous it is. And most people are watching it precisely because it's dangerous. Well, I think the thing is, you know, and I'm, Hey, I'm, I'm a very middle of the road guy. It's just going to be down to choice. You know, choose to watch it, choose to do it, choose to ignore it. Um, you know, if you want it banned, it, it's a strange thing, really, because you see this in society now because people, people are so opinionated and ev ev because social media has given everyone a voice and a, and a platform as well. You're so much more exposed to, to a whole plethora of, of, of different opinions and very strong ones as well, where, where otherwise you probably wouldn't have, have heard them. And I think it is going to boil down to choice. And, and for me, it is that choice. And I think I've known I've known journalists to struggle with uh, their the the grip of, of covering boxing. 
because they started to feel guilty about it. So they've stopped doing it. And that's their choice. I've also known people to have covered it through, you know, 50, 60 years of their lives and they've loved it and wouldn't change a thing. And, you know, we talk about, you know, when you talk about choice in the fighters, you know, two of the guys in the book, Muhammad Ali and obviously Aaron Pryor, whose widow I spoke to, Frankie, and who I know really well, you know, they've their voices are both very loud in the book saying, if I could do it all over again, I would. But I think the thing is, obviously, where where what might change is and what needs to change is the education for the fighters because there were quite there were a few fighters near the back of the book who didn't make it who did say ah oh, if i'd known that these these were the risks maybe i wouldn't have done it yeah so you know and that's where the education comes in because i'm in the same boat like i said i was in the sport i boxed for 10 years going from club to club and and from here to the to the usa and no one told me about CTE or tau protein or links with Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's and ALS. Like, it's just not a thing. And, it, hey, there's a good chance I might have said, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, whatever. But at least I would have known about it. And the problem is as well, the thing is as well, like, and, and one of the guys who's great talking about it is Tony Jeffries, who was the bronze medalist from the 2008 Olympics, um, who had to retire due to a hand injury of, of all things. Um He's sort of done the maths and how many blows he took in his career, amateur and pro. But he's got that level of awareness now to think it could come. So like when he loses his house keys, he's like, oh, my God, is this it? I can't remember where I've put them and all the rest of it. So it, it's it's better to have that awareness than not because so many fighters I've known down the years, like, don't know what's happening to them. Yeah. And they can't explain it. And the thing is, then there's a good chance that where they've been to a uh, they've been to they've been to a doctor's, and they might not have said they fought back in the day. Maybe they have, and, and but the doctor said, "Oh yeah, you maybe got early early onset dementia, or you've got Parkinson's symptoms, or whatever." And this has been a very widely sort of debated thing. It's something I've seen often, where because these guys have similar symptoms, whether they're slurring, whether they've got tremors quite often they'll just be told they've got this, that, or the other, and it's not linked to boxing. In fact, I've got a terrifying message from, from an old journeyman who I, who I know quite well on LinkedIn. He messaged me recently saying, um, Oh, you know, I've been really worried about my brain and, and, you know, I've been really forgetful and, and, you know, I've, I'm really panicking. And, uh, then he's messaged me and he said, Oh, it's all right. I've had an MRI scan and they said, everything's all right. And I'm like, that's not going to do it. Like that's not going to tell you what, what, where you're at, because what you actually need is, is MRI scans or of specific regions of your brain and to track it over time. So what they're looking at now might appear normal, but it might've changed massively from his scan 10 years ago and they can't compare it. But now he's been told, you know, and he's, he's got to be early forties and he's been told, and he's like, Oh no, you know, the scan says I'm fine. So I'm absolutely fine. You know, I'm so relieved and all the rest of it. This was a guy who was telling me he's worried about his speech and, and, uh, he's forgetting stuff and he's really depressed and all the rest of it, all these symptoms. And he's now had a brain scan that says he's in the clear and he's like, Oh no, I'm great. You know, I, I'm, and I've said, you know, well, you know, you should go see a neurologist. He said, Oh no, I saw a neurologist, uh, neurologist a year ago. Well, obviously you might be all right when you retire, you might be all right today, Look at Floyd Patterson. He woke up and didn't even know where he was. You know, it just it just bites you. It comes, it comes, and it bites you. And you know, it's it's a sad thing. And you know, so many people don't know what's going on with them. Well, it, 
So interesting. Some of the portraits you had in the book that were extraordinarily well done, but because of that, I think um, equally heartbreaking to read about uh, Shannon Briggs, you know, who I did a profile on. And I remember at one point where he was, now we can say it, I mean, at the time it was illegal, but I mean, he was constantly smoking weed during the, during the time I was shadowing him for a week um, to self-medicate. And said, what, you know, what was your excuse at the time, Brendan? Self medication as well? <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I've got you. Being in the presence of Let's Go Champ is, is you, have <laughs> you need um, to medicate, yeah, for sure. No, I really like Shannon, but I was aware a few times where he kind of broke, broke character of this sort of big one man show of Let's Go Champ, Let's Go Champ into, I know I'm damaged. He said that at one point, I know I'm damaged. I'm gonna have, I have children, I have my wife, I am not who I was. And it's because of my participation in this game and some of the beatings that I've had, and I know it's gonna get worse and I don't know where I'm headed. I Like I don't know this destination and it scares the hell out of me. It was like this one moment of this sort of Don King-like circus act which is like I, I thought was a brilliant character to come up with in a kind of wwe sort of way but when he gave this backstage pass to his concerns about the neurological damage it was really frightening and you offer a portrait of freddie roach um all of the damage that he took in his career i remember he told me once uh you took far less beatings if you went into boxing than if you didn't go into boxing and had to deal with dad as a result. And, you know, let's start with Amir Khan, because I think this is interesting. We began our conversation with Ali, somebody who maybe had the best jaw, him or Shivalo, in the history of heavyweight boxing. But if you're Amir Khan and you're famous for being chinny in the words of the media, I, I, I'm not accusing him of that. Um, are you more susceptible to damage if your chin cannot take the punishment that an Ali or a Shivalo can take? Or do we not know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we know that. And obviously, you know, then you've got to look at the individual as well. And I think uh, it's it's a tough one, isn't it? With, with Amir, you know, it's the great unknown how he was wiped out by Bradis Prescott, but then went all those hard rounds with Maidana. Right. You know, you got to, you know, and then obviously don't forget when Amir came back from the Prescott fight, one of his first assignments was to go all out sparring with Manny Pacquiao in the wild card as he moved trainers to Freddie Roach. Yeah. So, and, and Amir Khan was the golden boy in, of the 2004 Olympics. So he'd been boxing a few years before then. We're now in 2000 or 2021. He's still boxing. So he's been at this game for 21 years. Like whether you're chinny or not, that's a lot of punches. And you, and you mentioned that he couldn't remember his daughter's birthday. Well, that was on, that was on a TV show, and I mean, hey, he played that down and said, you know, oh, my memory, my memory is shocking anyway, and always has been. But hey, is you know, what can you do? I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, that made national headlines over here, and I'm not sure it was part of like a CTE conversation. It was just like I think the newspapers are saying basically Amir doesn't care about his kids, which is ridiculous, but you know, you know, you know what the newspapers are like. Well, I just, I mean, I had, I had dinner with him and, and Roach one time when they were stuck in Vancouver. And I was so struck by just, unlike most boxers at his level, 
um, I think they just don't have the opportunity to really concern themselves with a lot outside of boxing in order they, they require that kind of monomaniacal dedication to boxing. But Khan was so curious about so many different things. Like he was such an intelligent, articulate guy. And to hear that he couldn't remember his daughter's birthday uh, and, and just from 2010 to where he is now, he has been through some pretty serious beatings in the ring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it, 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 I think it was the Sammy Vargas one where it looked like it was going to be quite quick for him and then he got drawn into a firefight. I think it was that one. But, yeah, he's had he's had a lot of hard fights. You know, he's he had the beautiful um, fight. He had a long fight with Paulie Malignaggi as he made his U.S. debut. Um, yeah, I mean, he's been around and he's had all these fights and, and, and all that. You know, when you talk about lost, lost big knockout losses, you know, I think he had – was it nearly two years off after that huge Canelo knockout as well, where he went all the way up to middleweight to fight Canelo? Brutal. So, yeah, there's, there's, you know, hey, I've got nothing but respect for Amir Khan. I like him as a person. I think he's fought everyone, bar Kell Brook. But, you know, as a British guy, you've got to put that asterisk in there. But it doesn't mean you can take anything, any, any credit away from him at all, nor should you, because he's fought a who's who of everybody. But, you know, that, that takes a toll. Yeah, it was just these portraits. And I mean, I thought the Freddie Roach one stood out for me, um, reminded me a bit of Jonathan Rendell with his famous Kid Chocolate profile, one of my favorite profiles ever. But Freddie, uh, I think you mentioned him spraining his ankle on a run as sort of the first indicator that something was off, that something wasn't right. And staying in there, his coach saying, you're done. And that... I mean, it, it almost becomes axiomatic in terms of you just can't teach young people any lessons you've learned because I think it was 80% of the people he told that he'd worked with as a trainer, you need to stop, told him to go fuck himself. Yeah, and that was, that was what he told, told Eddie Futch. Eddie said, you know, you need to quit. He said, you need to go fuck yourself. And yeah. you know, that's what he's – but this is why you need guys looking out for the fighters. The problem is – it's a tough one, isn't it, Brim? Because when you, so when you got, you know, Freddie obviously still had some name value attached. He'd been on ESPN and he'd been in some fun fights and fought some big names like Bobby Chacon and, and all the rest of it. So a young trainer, a young guy coming into the sport who fresh will then have their opportunity, if he's no longer working with Eddie Futch, to make his name with Freddie. And so they might lose. They might lose. We might no longer be working with Eddie, but someone somewhere will want to work with Freddie because of his name and his star value at the time. So it would open a door for somebody else, um, you know. And, and that's the problem because there's too many people sort of waiting in the wings to take advantage of these guys. Yeah. Well, and and I thought it was really interesting your personal relationship to boxing. You've mentioned ten years as an amateur. And you talk quite candidly in the book toward the end about the possible repercussions of you being somebody who wanted to sort of be a bit of a slugger throughout throughout your involvement in boxing. And that included being willing to take a lot of punches in order to give some. And I've noticed like myself, like I, I, I wasn't involved in amateur boxing for 10 years, but I was for six. And I haven't really been able to have three hours sleep in the last four years. And when I went to a neuroscientist just to ask about some short-term memory issues that I've had, the first thing he asked is, "What? What's the, do you have sleep issues, which I do, 
But I mean, uh, I I also was involved in football as a kid, you know, as a twelve year old, and I, I I found football. You talk about boxing being like worse. I believe was your characterization than football. My experience was football was far worse than boxing because there was no way to avoid the collisions. Whereas in boxing, you are trying to get out of the way of this stuff, and sometimes they catch you. But in football, every single down is a collision every single time. And that was a very young brain that was crunching into other very young brains with helmets. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I have tried to stay away from is like any kind of scaremongering. And I probably haven't succeeded with that. But, you know, in terms of, in terms of, because now I think I've got people similar to me second guessing themselves. I mean, I, I noticed some, what I thought was issues with my speech years ago. And I was thinking, you know, I'm sure I'm not speaking. I was, I was a bit Stallone-like, a bit Rocky, a bit Rocky-like. And I was thinking, you know, I'm not putting this on. Something's changed a little bit. And I think over time I'm speaking better. But then, you know, I, I've heard people over time, like a Roy Jones or a Vander Holyfield, the more distance between their last fights, the more clearly I've heard them speak. Mm. And I'm sure when I've interviewed them in the past, I've, I've heard them not speak as clearly as they actually do now. So I wonder if there is any kind of neuro, neuroplasticity where they do maybe get better over time. And then obviously, I, you know, I wonder about forgetfulness and stuff because I used to be very sharp and now I'm less sharp. But obviously I've had, you know, you, you do get older. I'm 42 now and I've had a, a very traumatic divorce that sort of took several years. I've probably wiped a good part of my edge off me because, you know, you just don't get some of yourself back from that. And maybe all that was contributory. Um, but I don't know, you know, but knowing what I know now about CTE, I suppose the other thing from a personal standpoint is my father had Parkinson's. So if I've got a predisposition to that, as well as I've actually accepted a good bit of trauma over the years, it's probably not great. I mean, my, my own thoughts now of what I've done and what I've heard, I probably uh, played roulette a little bit too much, a little bit too much with my health back then and didn't know much about what I was doing. But it doesn't sound from the from the case studies I've seen that my exposure was anything like enough to be severely affected. You know, when you look at these guys, some of them have had and I'm not quite sure why it's even a thing now, but why these guys are having 300 amateur fights now and 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 then 20 year pro careers or 15 year pro careers, you know, if that doesn't tell the normal person that too much, you know, enough's enough, then what can, what, what help, what hope do we have? But, uh, but yeah, I don't think my trauma was, was as bad, but then I've heard, I've heard real fighters, real world champions say, Oh, you know, I think I'm doing just fine. And what can you do? I did an interview with Evander Holyfield for the book that didn't actually make the book. And he said, Oh, I'm really pleased. I got out while I did because Andy Ruiz kicked my ass in sparring and that made me realize the time was up. And I'm like, well, you know, you've had a 40 year hard career. Like, um, you know, maybe the signs were there before Andy Ruiz for other people if they'd been paying attention. Yeah. And I mean, obviously Vander is famously religious, but I remember Roy Jones saying to me when I was asking him, why are you still doing this? And he said, if God wanted me to stop, I'd fail a neurological exam. I'd fail an MRI. So clearly I'm co-signed to do whatever the hell I want. Um, but, this, this, but this is one of the things, and obviously, you know, I, I lay this out in the book. You know, some states you need an MRI scan. Some states you need a CAT scan. 
Some states you need both. Some some states you need neither. He fought in Russia. What scans did he have there? You know where where are all these tests where he's where he's able to see what the damage is? And you know that's about you know God talk about pushing it to the absolute limit. I'm going to fight until I fail a brain scan. That's yeah. just what can you say? I mean, I, there, there's almost no words. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really challenging. And I mean, you mention. You mentioned George Foreman, and Foreman is almost always held up as the exception to the rule of coming from a hugely long career, you know, some really famous knockdowns that he suffered at the hands of Ron Lyle and some others. Um, but people say, look, he's, he's fine. He's exactly the same as he was before boxing. There doesn't seem to be any damage. But, but I vividly remember going to his house and his son saying to me, can we work out the parameters of what we're going to discuss? You know, it's not saying that he's damaged, not saying that dad has any problems, but some things are, there are some more cobwebs than others. If you go back in time to, to certain areas. And I just thought, again, we're sort of um, by, by coming up with these kind of myths that you can emerge from boxing totally unscathed, I think is a little irresponsible. I mean, just like, uh, there was a recent study saying that there really isn't a safe amount of alcohol to consume in terms of it not impacting your brain and cognitive function. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying it's one study, but uh, I wondered if we looked at alcohol the way we do cigarettes contributing to cancer as alcohol contributing to neurological damage, if there's more data to support it, would people stop? Would people behave any differently? I don't know. It's interesting. You talk about George Foreman. Obviously, in the book, I touch upon George Chivalo, who was also held out as one of the, the Iron Men from that era, who was like unstoppable and always great into old age, and who I visited in Toronto back in 2004, I think it was. Yeah. And I had a great conversation with him. We talked about damage and we talked about his future and all the rest of it. He's like, well, you know, so I'm so, so far so good and I'm in good health. And now, obviously, I don't think I could have that same conversation with him because he's he's fallen off a cliff. But how does it is it is it the damage or was he just an older dude? Is he you know he's eighty plus now? So was it just going to come inevitably? You know what what can you say? Um, one of the things that's interesting there you say about George Foreman, and that's not something I'd I'd heard of before, which is sad. But um, you know, people hold out Jake Lamotta as a as a guy as a great example as to. Sure fighter who managed to keep his wits about him into old age and he, he did very very well and don't get me wrong if i had a granddad at 96 i think jake was or 98 whatever he was and he was as, as sharp as jake then that's fine but jake was on loop a lot of the time he'd memorized his after dinner notes for years and he was basically on repeat you know, so it sounded fine but if you spent any time in his company a couple of hours you would get the same stuff you know on loop um and i think it was just a pre-rehearsed line that's the, the pre-rehearsed lines that stayed with him into old age because you know it's just the stuff that he, he gave out and he sort of just almost like uh muscle memory just you, you trotted out the same lines all the time which is not an uncommon feature of covering the sport when you meet up with the old timers that is a very common feature at least in my experience with them well, Steve, my, 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 my most my most rich example of that was when i went and visited the former great light heavyweight harold johnson in a nursing home in philadelphia 
and it was a privilege to spend time with Harold and, and um, you know, I have so much respect and admiration for him. But basically, I didn't have, I was traveling on such a budget and I only had sort of one or two micro cassette tapes to record at the time. And it got to the point where he kept telling me the same stories over and over. So you can hear, like, I just clicked off the micro cassette and started again when we started a new story or I'd ask a new question because in an hour long interview, he must have just told me the same things over and over and over and over again. Um, back then, I didn't know what I know now. And I thought, oh, you know, does he not remember? He just told me that. And obviously now I'm older and a little bit wiser. Um, you know, I see things differently. I wanted to ask you, this is a little separate from your book because you didn't touch upon it, but um, you worked out with Kevin Rooney for a time in the Catskills. And I have not heard anything about Kevin Rooney in years. And I just wondered, uh, especially since there was a recent Tyson documentary uh, on ABC that just came out earlier this week. Um, what is the state of Kevin Rooney these days? Um, I, so I haven't, so that when I was with him, it was about 2001 or 2002. So we're 20 years on, but I understand he's in a bad way now. And, um, I want to say it's Alzheimer's. Um, obviously Kevin Rooney Jr. works for Matchroom, I believe, right. uh, as, um, some of the PR stuff. And Kevin Rooney Jr. had a couple of amateur fights as well, or pro fights as pro well. Fights, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I understand Kevin's not in a great way, but he also had, uh, a battle with alcohol that raged for a long period of time. And so obviously that doesn't, um, help you long-term either. Obviously, you know, what we're, what we're talking about is Kevin was an ex-pro, had some hard fights, entertaining fights, got, not disrespectfully, but got beheaded by Alexis Arguello. Yeah, um, brutal, brutal knockout. And so, yeah, but that, uh, long story short, as last I heard, he's, 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 he's struggling with his health. Yeah, I was just interested. I, I think I'm about an hour and a half away from the Catskills and I've never been up there, but was always interested to check it out. And, and I was wondering, is he still operating that gym above the police station? And what's the state of the, the I think it's called the Custom Auto Boxing Club now. Yeah. So it's, I, so they had, since I was there, because when I was there, it was like a museum. So they had all the yellow Tyson paper clippings that had yellowed with time. Oh. And it was, you know, it was the, the ring was the same ring with all the old blood stains and you know, taped up turnbuckles and all the rest of it. And it was like a step, you know, it was like going back into the 1950s, let alone the 1980s. And then I think there was big local investment in it um, a few years after I was there and they sort of renamed it and renovated it all and, and all the rest of it. Um, I don't know who runs it, et cetera now, but they were great days for me, obviously, to live that Tyson lifestyle and to do, to train the way that Mike had trained and, you know, Kevin would. Kevin didn't do the pads really with with anyone by that point. But what we had, he would do some with some of his pros like Leonard Pierre and Jay Krupp and stuff. But we'd spar and do a lot of the bag work, um, and the, you know the neck exercises, all the all the old stuff from back in the day. But one of the things I always remember blowing my mind was, uh, and this shows you how long ago it was when I was there, but also shows you a bit about the history of the place. Is there was an old tape recorder there. Uh, a tape player, my, uh, just a normal cassette player. And you'd press play and it was Cuss calling out the combinations one to seven. Hmm. 
and you know it just became subliminal because you just put the play you put the tape, cassette tape on every day and just practice combinations again and again 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 one two one three two four you know and you just be throwing all the punches and it kind of it becomes second nature because it's so when you do it over and over and over again but to hear cuss's voice echoing through that famous gym uh you know it's part of history isn't it it's part of boxing history and it, it was you know sort of get gets the hair off on the back of my neck talking about it now it's a great experience i guess last thing is i've heard tyson kind of allude to the idea that he thinks he may have been damaged from boxing from the punches he took or some of the knockouts what what's your sense of of where have did you have a chance to interview tyson or how how is he in terms of escaping the sport relatively unscathed so there's a couple of great points with that is i've interviewed him before but never about this um last time i interviewed him was a year a year or so ago for bt sport talking all things fury wilder too um and he was great we had a lot of time i think he was very high at the time we had a lot of fun um What's your excuse for smoking weed with Mike Tyson? <laughs> actually came, it was the weed he gave me actually. It wasn't with him. Um, anyway, um, but no, it was legal. Anyway, whereas yours was Shannon Briggs. That was before it was, that was, before it was legal, I'm sure. <laughs> Touche. Anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think there's a couple of things with Mike. And the two things that fascinate me with this and, it's something I wouldn't obviously speculate about necessarily in black and white because that's all it is. It's, all, it's only speculation. But you factor in those big losses to particularly uh, Buster Douglas, uh, Holyfield in the first fight, and Lennox Lewis, really. And this is before McBride and Danny Williams, but they were hard fights where he took a lot of punishment. Mm -hmm. And then you think he was sparring with guys like Greg Page and Oliver McCall. And obviously, we see him dropped in sparring. Was it by was it by Oliver McCall uh, pre-Tokyo? Page. Page, I think. Page pre-Tokyo and uh, you know apparently they had ding-dongs all the time and you know just hard hard sparring and Mike's career was what he was he failed to get to the 84 Olympic team so where was he sparring from boxing from about 82 through to what 2004 five and then he's obviously now just fought Roy Jones so you know what's that 20 20 odd year career and then you know so from the physical side of things you could make a case, you know, he's taken a lot of punishment over the years. Um, and then you look at, obviously, then you got to factor in the behavioral stuff. And it goes back to where we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, Pete, there are people will say, you might, Mike was always destined to implode because of his background, you know, such a, such a challenging upbringing, you know, with his mum and his dad um, and being in the environment where he was and being bullied and, all the rest of it and then obviously go falling in with the wrong crowd the jolly stompers and all the rest of it and it's just one of those we will we'll, unless he donates his brain we'll never we'll never know but we'll be able to speculate um it's just obviously sad that you know you you see this guy and you remember him as this beast this terror we don't want another ali do we we don't want another another guy that's really struggling for a long period of time after boxing. Some people might, some people may, might say it's karma with all the stuff from over the years, but I don't think anyone necessarily deserves that long, slow death. Um, but I'm going off on a, on a tangent here because there are probably people who be saying, well, he's done this and he's done that. But 
it, it is what it is. But yeah, speculation. One thing I will say is actually um, from an from an author's perspective, this subject has been really close to my heart massively, and I talk about donating. But, you know, Mike donated his brain. I know obviously Mickey Ward's done it. Greg Page did it as well. So Greg's page, Greg, Greg's brain was examined. Uh, quite a few people uh, I've spoken to have different people, the parts of different fighter studies. And I wanted to do my bit. So I've actually donated my brain to the Concussion Legacy Foundation too. Um, and I, I, you know, whether or not it helps anyone, I don't know. But um, it's, you know, I feel very strongly about it. So I want to help if I can. Yeah, I, I guess... What it what it what it makes me think is it's a bit like uh, there was an illusion with let's say in the United States uh, anti-vaccination ideology that it was an ignorance issue, and it's been proven that it's not an ignorance issue. It's a belief issue that you're confronting the a belief system as opposed to even when they are informed, they get more wedded to their belief, and so I wonder if if Tyson became Ali hypothetically. With with CTE um, showing itself in ways that became so so iconic, like with a- Ali, uh, would it really change anybody's mind now that there's less room for misunderstanding about what caused it? Do you know that's a really interesting um, that's a really interesting portrait or picture to draw? Imagine Tyson struggling. Uh, imagine him you know um his health deteriorating quickly and also imagine him sticking his colors to the mast and saying this is boxing this is cte you know we're all brothers we need to look out for each other we talked about there at the start you know with big names oj simpson and ali and could, could there be a big case where where things are sort of expedited to help fighters Tyson could be one of those guys, you know, that does lead the charge. And obviously he's been so intrinsically linked and caught up in the history of the sport. He knows what's happened to so many of these guys and has been friends with them. He's probably, he might be the one guy living that actually could do serious amounts of work to raise awareness about CTE um, to the wider landscape and, to not hey no one wants to become a poster boy of it but to but to take to take that role that could be a serious game changer for the sport um obviously it's it's wild speculation but it just made me think with what you said at the at the top there about you know if if someone died from someone in peds would we have that sort of watershed moment well tyson might be the watershed moment for boxing or could be uh, obviously I'd rather him not deteriorate. Sure. Of course, uh, obviously the fact that he's talking about having symptoms and, and maybe being exposed, you know, through his exposure and stuff, maybe he could be the guy that, that would raise awareness and, and make it part of the conversation. And I mean, <clears throat> we have later this summer Pacquiao sort of following the alley blueprint of going out with some extraordinarily challenging with an extraordinarily challenging fight against Errol Spence after his his last fight against Keith Thurman, um, I'm really afraid of something, you know, having a really terrible last chapter, as Ali did against Spinks and, and Burbick. Um, I don't know. Uh, I suppose the only thing is with that, Bryn, is, you, you know, the guy's, you know, the, guy, the, guy, the guy's coming off a big win over Keith Thurman, whereas obviously Ali... 
you know, there were signs way, way, way before, you know, even before shavers. But, you know, so in terms of that big drop off, it's not the same from it's, it would be the same if if Manny had taken a big beating from, say, uh, um, from Thurman and was now fighting Spence. You'd be like, wow, that's just the wrong way. But obviously, there's a lot of people saying this is actually a really good fight and competitive fight, given that he's the guy that beat Keith, uh, given that he's the guy that beat Keith Thurman. Yeah, no, it's just it's just crazy to me that Pacquiao is now two years older than Ali when he walked away from the sport, and he's still going with a challenge of, of this caliber with Errol Spence. Um, I, I just hope he does not become a poster boy for. Well, I mean, when what has he had a twenty-five year career at this point? Twenty-seven year career. I mean, just incredible, incredible. Yeah case study thank you so much for your time today i really enjoyed your book and i'm delighted to see it getting the kind of glowing reviews it's getting they're well earned thanks Bryn. i'm grateful for your time and and thanks for for giving it the time of day and and being able to read it i'm grateful pleasure pleasure we'll talk soon my friend great anytime thank you so much all right take care man bye bye, bye. bye. thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers for this show are George Alarcón Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.